Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter Podcast, I'll be interviewing Neil Kelleher. Based in Taichung City, Taiwan, Neil is a full-stack developer with a degree in systems design engineering from the University of Waterloo, and he's also a longtime yoga teacher. You can follow him on Twitter at Neil Kelleher, and that's Neil as in kneeling, and check out his website at sensational-yoga-poses.com. Neil is the author of a number of LeanPub books, including his latest two, Learning How to Learn, Mental Models, and Know to Flow. In the books, Neil writes about how when we learn, our brain builds models, and those models form the foundation of our understanding, and about how to get in the flow to improve performance across a wide variety of activities. In this interview, we're going to talk about Neil's background and career, his interests, his books, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience as a self-published author. So thank you very much, Neil, for being on the Front Matter podcast, finally. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Lam. And uh, <laughs> thanks for calling me a full-stack developer. I would uh, say I'm a beginning full-stack developer. I just learned Node.js and uh, I've done some apps. Um, uh, anyway, I'll... I'll oh, no, that's that. great. No, it's, um, it's funny. I always I always say to people just before we, we start recording, uh, I'm going to do my introduction and you can correct all my mistakes. And so <laughs> if you just did that, that's actually a really good way to start. Um, so I, I always like to start these interviews by asking people about their origin story. Um, so I know you you have a very uh, interesting background and you've done a lot of different things. So I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about where you grew up and maybe we'll go through your journey to, uh, you know, Taiwan. Okay. Um, well, first of all, I think part of my, my journey actually started in, so I was born in England. We moved to Canada when I was six and then I moved back to England when I was 16, 17, joined the British Army. But before that... I think some of my most important life lessons was in were in was in grade seven or grade six science class. We had a teacher, Mr. Tollett, and I remember one of the first lessons he was explaining what science was. Is nowadays there's a lot of discussion about science and what it is and what it isn't. But I remember him very simply saying, "Science is the process of building models." And he talked about models and said, "A model can never truly represent." You know the thing it represents so science you know bear in mind this is about 40 years ago when it, so i'm trying to remember exactly what he said but this is what i remember science is the process of improving models or part of science is in process of improving models so that they print better predict or better represent what they're supposed to represent so that sort of stuck with me and that's i think a big essential element of the yeah, mental modeling book and another thing uh I might have learned in grade seven, or it might have been afterwards when I went back to university studying um, engineering, was this idea of references. So when you when you talk about measuring temperature, we need a zero degrees Celsius for Fahrenheit, it's, you know, whatever it is for the Fahrenheit scale. But in anything that where there's some sort of measurement, we need a datum. And they, they brought up a whole bunch of different things. So, for example, if you're measuring voltage, you need a reference point to be able to specify voltage um, effectively. Or for current, you need to specify a direction in which current flows. So so that was another thing I learned in science class. And then another, another idea, and I have another website called Zero Parallax, uh, which is sort of like my, I don't do a lot of work on there, but that sort of tries to capture the essence of what I try to write about and do. Um, but I had a teacher, Miss Klobuchar, in grade eight chemistry, and she talked about, in chemistry class, one of the first things she talked about was measuring fluids. 
and we held a beaker. Obviously, this isn't a beaker, but you had to hold your eyes level with, say, the level of the fluid so that you could mm. get an accurate me- reading so that it was, so you eliminate parallax. So here I've got parallax because I'm looking down, so the reading's going to be inaccurate. Likewise here. And so the idea of the website that I, one of my websites I created called Zero Parallax was the idea of understanding how you relate to something so that you can find the position where there's zero parallax. But another point of view was understanding. So a more common uh, way to talk about parallax is if you're looking at a clock and if you're looking at it straight on, you know, the clock with hands, not the digital type, you can see exactly what time it is. But if you're at the side of it, say the hand is close to 12 o'clock, you might think it's it looks like it's more like two minutes past past the hour or two minutes ahead of the hour. So there's there's two things. One is if you understand how you relate to the clock, if you see you're off, you can sort of correct for that viewing error, viewing error. You can zero parallax and say, oh, it's actually whatever time it is. But on the other hand, if you understand how you, you relate and you understand that your relationship is slightly off and you and correct for it, you can sort of make a, well, I understand that my viewing error is off, so I can account for that error and say that I think it's whatever time it is. You know, So if you understand your relationship, you can correct for parallax for the viewing error. Um, so that was sort of, those were sort of three basic very important things which I've sort of carried throughout my life is, and the thing with with uh, parallax is about understanding how two things relate, how you relate to the thing you're looking at. And it was interesting because I was talking with a girl who I knew a long time ago when I first moved to Taiwan. I was teaching English. She was another English teacher, and we we talked about parallax. And she's she talked about driving a boat and how when you're driving a boat, particularly a speedboat, but I guess with a sailing boat as well, you could be going straight ahead, but the boat could be skewed like that and you know, driving ahead like that. So the idea of sort of parallel, it's sort of a relationship is under having orienting the boat so that it is in line with the direction it's traveling. That that's something you don't encounter with driving a car. And then she talked about piloting a plane because she also did piloting is it when you're in a small plane you're either to the left or the right of the center line much like driving a car but when you're say landing a plane and to center yourself on the runway you have to understand where you are with respect to the plane so that you can center yourself with respect to the runway so i'd say those are sort of three very important points of my background which have sort of carried through to me even today and so to skip ahead, um, do you need to ask anything there? <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's that's really good. I really, I really like this. It's interesting. We've we've been we've done a launch interview uh, before, so Neil and I have talked a little bit before, so I'm familiar with some of some of these ideas already. But it is, so I'm just going to observe that there is this interesting kind of through line from the beginning to to now, and the, the many things you've done in your life and things you've written about. You know, so for example, even when you talk about you know relative positioning, um, you know that that's a part of the way you. When you when you're writing about yoga, for example, or sort of like knowing knowing the relative position of limbs in your body when you're in various poses and things like that, and I just find that that sort of interesting. Um, but one thing I did want to ask you about, 
um, is joining the the British Army. Um, uh, yeah. um, why did you do that, and what was that like? One's well, that interesting because um, I was what before before this interview I was watching a, a previous interview you did with Simon Brown. I said the name. Yeah. Do you remember yeah. the name? And he, you know, you were talking about university, the pro, you know, him going to university, you know, picking out university. And it reminded me exactly why I wanted to join the army. Because I grew up in Toronto, East York. And I remember trudging to school one day and it was sort of February, March, you know, when the snow gets all really heavy and it's just horrible. And I might've been in grade 11 and I thought, I just don't want to spend, you know, because at the time the university college admin people were coming to school asking us what we wanted to do in school and my thoughts i don't even know what i want to do how can i make a decision uh you know because the idea of university is generally to prepare you for life after university but it's, i don't even have a clue what i want to do after university and you're expecting me to make these decisions and then suppose i make a decision that entails another four years of more school you know straight from regular school and I was trudging through the school. I don't want to spend another five years in school studying. I just just want to get out of here. And so, because all of these guys were people who were coming to school to ask us what we wanted to do, and I didn't know. And I somehow I got attracted to the idea of joining the army. Maybe because my dad was in the army at one point. Maybe I thought I wanted to join the navy, and it just became that's what I want to do. I was talking to my dad about it, and he said, well, if you want to join the army, and if you know that's what you want to do, why not move to England now? Because for whatever reason, even though I grew up in Canada, and I, as I said, I was born in England, I had this idea that I wanted to join the British army because maybe it was the better army, and, and also because the Canadian, because I'd been in air cadets and they knew I had flat feet, I couldn't get into the Canadian army because it was in, in my records and I had flat feet, which you know, when you're trying to get in the army is you generally, they don't admit you. And so just quickly, what I had to do to pass the British medical is hide the fact that I had flat feet. So basically what, you know, if this is my foot, my foot's like this, what I basically learned how to do is to form an arch with my foot. Right? At the time I didn't know how I did it, but that's how I got, that's how I passed the British medical, British army medical. And that in turn sort of led me into becoming a, it was part of what led me into becoming a yoga teacher, that sort of body awareness. But my dad suggested to me, well, if you think you want to join the army, why not move to England now? Figure out if it is actually what you want to do. Then the thing is, you can always continue. If you decide you don't like it, you can leave and go back to school. But failing that, you can always continue your education in the army because when he was in the army, he, bettered himself by doing correspondence courses. And the thing was, said, you're doing correspondence courses, so you're learning, but at the same time you're getting paid, so you're being paid to learn. And at the same time, you're getting to figure out whether you want to be in the army. And the one thing he did say is, you know, rather than joining the infantry, why not get a trade? So that, again, if you decide to leave the army or when you decide to leave the army, you've got something to fall back on, something you can do after the army. And so that was the, <laughs> so I picked the Royal Electrical Mechanical Engineers or RINI, which is basically, those are the people that, the mechanics, the what have you. 
And so the trade I picked was armorer, someone who fixes guns, which probably isn't the most practical thing to um, come out of the army with, but never, nevertheless, that is what I picked. So that's that's how that's more or less the reason I, I joined the army. And the, the funny thing was, when I moved to England, I thought it was what I wanted to do as a career. So walked into the careers office said, oh, I want to sign up for 22 years. And they said, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> the maximum we can sign on for is nine years. And actually, we have three, six, or nine years. And said, okay, yeah, sure. I'll sign up for nine years. Me at 60 years old, committing to the rest of my life. And the, and the reason to pick nine years versus six or three is the actual pay is a little bit more. Um, but if anyone has a similar idea, I would strongly suggest doing three years because after three years, they try to convince you to sign on again and they'll give you courses and whatnot. But if you sign up for 90, you're saying, no, you've got you. So, um, yeah, if anyone is deciding following my footsteps, I would strongly suggest doing three years instead. Anyway. And did you have to do uh, basic training or something? something? Yeah, base, basic training. And because because it was we were supposed to be more intelligent, basic training was fairly curtailed. Cur compared to, say, someone whose job it is to fire guns. So after basic training, it was six months uh, trade training. And I, sh I should point out here, um, I, last, I actually signed, um, bought myself out of the Army after five years. I had to do a minimum of three years after trade training so they get their money back, and then I could find myself out. And one of the reasons I decided that being in the army wasn't for me was working with guns was so boring, like they're such simple machines. Uh, like once you've learned them, fixing, repairing weapons, it is really boring. But um, what was interesting was just when I came up time for me to PVR or premature voluntary request, the first Gulf War started where Saddam invaded uh, Kuwait. I I get stuck on rear party, which is basically the people who guard the camp while everyone else gets carted off to um, Kuwait. And then the CSM, the um, company sergeant major, who's in charge of my division, basically be my, my boss. Uh, he said, that's a really crappy job. There's this posting that's come up to Bavaria, ski shelling. You can help run that the uh, Rimi ski chalet for six, for however long it is. Thought, oh, great. And so, so while the Gulf War was on, I got sent to a ski chalet in Bavaria. I was helping run this ski chalet because they send soldiers there for sort of adventure training. So I ended up for six months of this ski chalet skiing in the winter and then um, cycling in the summer. And, you know, and that was, that was interesting because one of the things I did while I was in the army was I studied correspondence courses. And one of the things I loved doing while I was at the ski shop was cross-country skiing and using black skis where you you know stick the wax on the bottom for grip. And we were skiing one time and going up a hill, and the the boss said, oh, "If you want to go uphill, the best way is to lean forward onto your poles." And I remember doing part of my math course was, it was this was English A level maps where there's a pure and an applied section and then the applied section which is basically what we call physics in engineering school is part about force vectors you know force vectors so um if you have a force going at an angle you can divide that into vectors so there's a component going that way and a component going down 
So basically what I figured out was if I wanted the most force pressing down on the lax pocket while I'm going uphill so I have better grip, the better answer is to position my center of gravity directly over the lax pocket so that I'm pressing down on so I'm basically pressing down on the lax pocket with as much force as possible. So what I did was basically centered myself over the lax pocket. I found given the lax, I could actually climb up. Uh, go up a ski hill pretty pretty easily um so that was i'm sort of jumping ahead but that was sort of one of the experiences that i got in army but going back uh, um so i'm at this ski chalet meanwhile one of my sister's friends who I was also friends with turned up at my parents house when she found out about the war and she was a little bit in tears because she thought i was going down to the area uh she thought i was going to the gulf hard up and my dad says well Actually, he's in Bavaria at a ski chalet. She's like, oh, I cried for nothing. <laughs> well, I'm I'm, I'm glad to hear you. Probably an interesting experience. <laughs> yeah. Well, but on the so I just one other thing because yeah. this is relevant to the army and it's also relevant to to sort of what I write about because as well as writing about uh, modeling uh, a little bit, what I talked about the scientific model. An important idea there is the idea of habits, things that we do without thinking. And one of the things that made me decide to leave the army was I had a negligent discharge. That's when you fire a weapon when you're not supposed to. Uh, accidental discharge, negligent discharge is quite serious offense. And if you think about it, you're working with a gun and it goes off. I was very lucky no one got hurt. And I remember this happened, I was in Northern Ireland. I was the armorer. I was supposed to be inspecting weapons and fixing them. So I pick up a weapon because there is a a certain thing that we have to check. I can't remember what it was, but I was supposed to check that all weapons had this modification. So I go to the quick reaction force hut where they've got all their weapons locked and loaded. And, and this goes back a little bit to my training. Our weapons training in basic training wasn't as thorough as it was for, say, an infantry person. They would be drilled endlessly on things that you do with a weapon. You pick up a weapon, first thing you do, cock it three times, make sure the uh, mag sure mags off, cock it three times, check the chamber, make sure there's no round in it, shall clear. And this is something you do before walking um, and picking up a strange weapon, before walking into a building with your weapon, basic weapon safety. And I say this now sort of nonchalantly, it's only because I had an accident that I realized how important it was. And my train, my the level of weapon training we had in basic training wasn't to the point where we did it automatically. And I was talking to my dad about it. And he says, it's, it's because you're reading and you're expected to be smarter. And this idea that you could think, think about it and sort of just know and it's a big part of what I write about in um, mental models, learning how to learn mental models. And it is turning things, instead of thinking about things, just doing it by instinct so you can do it without thinking. And so basically what happened was I went to a QRF, had picked up a weapon, didn't do the mag off, click three, um, uh, cocked it three times or ejected it three times to make sure there, there was no magazine and everything. I just start taking this weapon apart. And I notice uh, an odd color, this brass color. And bear in mind, I was a little bit dozy at the time, like sleep deprived, whatever. I wasn't paying attention to my job. 
I saw something was wrong, dimly realized that there was still a magazine attached. Not only that, there was a magazine with bullets in it. So I put the weapon together, and instead of taking the magazine off and unloading it, I fired the weapon, and this was inside a bunker. The weapon went off. Holy sugar. And, uh, you know, went into minor shock. Ended up getting charged and, uh, you know, having to go in front of the CO. Apparently, I was almost going to get kicked up, uh, kicked out of Ireland, you know, because my job as an armor was supposed to be, I was supposed to be, supposed to know how to work with weapons. And I had flashbacks for a while after. It was like, thank God no one was in front of me when I fired that weapon. Um, but then it was, I sort of had that thought in my mind. It's like, maybe a life in the army isn't the best thing for me. You know, this, uh, apart from the fact that working with guns was so boring anyway. But that that sort of that idea of habits of making things automatic was a very big um, is a very big part of the uh, mental models books of turning things into habits. Yeah, thanks very much for sharing that really that really good story. Um, and uh, yeah, no, very glad to hear no one no one was in in front of you when that when that happened. But it, it's a, you tell it so well because um, you know I think that. Um, that that happens more often than we might think where like you know because someone let's 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 say let's say you know talk about being is thought to be smarter but you know sort of like have a talent for something and people often think either of themselves or other of other people that you can skip steps um because of that yeah. um and i've i've had my own experience with that um you know professionally uh and um there are some things that you just have to learn you know it doesn't matter how smart you are you know if you make someone the coach of a football team and they don't know what a down is uh, American football, uh, for anyone watching, you know, they're not going to be able to coach the team. Um, uh, and they're, they're really, they're really, and, but, but also, and it's, it's interesting when we talk about your other book, um, know to flow, I know you, you talk a little bit about in there about how, like, you know, sometimes getting out of the flow is really important too, because then it can give you perspective, um, uh, on, on things, especially specifically with respect to mistakes you might be making. Um, I think the example you use yeah. in the book is carving. You were just sort of carving away, carving away, carving away, and then re like, wood carving and then you realized you'd made a kind of like you know kind of funny if you get the book you'll see why it's funny but you made even make a funny mistake uh, with what you were carving but you know um and this is this is jumping ahead a little bit but it's interesting how again these things are sort of tied the things that you write about and and the things that you do in your life are tied into these explicit sort of awarenesses of experiences that you've you've gone through but um you know that one thing one can do specifically with something you think you're really good at or you've done a million times is you can just dive into it and start doing it you know, um, uh, and, but it, but you might've done something wrong from the very beginning and you go way down the path until, and then someone else comes along who might not know anything about it and go, what are you doing? <laughs> and then yeah. you kind of snap out of it and go, oh my God. And like, um, in my former days as, as an investment banker, I did a lot of like financial modeling in Excel. Um, and that was something that like, that was like a common, like a thing that like I did over and over again, which was like, just like someone would give me a task, like, you know, build a model of a, of an electricity generation business or something like that. And I'd start going down it and it'd be like, no, 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 I did. <laughs> like, I just made some faulty, the logic was all right. The, the Excel, you know, kind of was all masterful. Uh, but there was some like, you know, bad assumption from the beginning because my brain was like, oh, who cares? Who cares about like the actual third, you know, decimal place when, but when I should have been yeah. caring about that. Um, and anyway, it is interesting how like both of our, like we can make these mistakes about ourselves, but other people can make those mistakes about us too. Uh, and there are some things that you just need to learn. And there are some things that you just need to drill into yourself as habits. 
big time. And actually, that's you know what you're just talking about there reminds me one. Um, so at the army, I I applied to University of Waterloo and I, I got in. I studied systems design. Um, but one of my co-op terms, I actually ended up working at a gun factory, a rifle factory, right in Waterloo. My physics professor, uh, John McSee, got me hooked me up with a guy who worked there. So my I think my first job, my first co-op job at the university was working at a gun factory, and I had to do uh, a drawing for a spring, and it was on AutoCAD or something like that. And we went back and forth about 20 times simply because I was an idiot because I would do it, I'd do the drawing, make a change, give it to him, and he said, you forgot this. So I'd do it again, make a change. But in the meantime, I'd forget something else. I never, ever, each time I gave it to him, I never checked my work. He said, you didn't do this. Give it to him. You didn't do this thing. My board. And so it's a, so that's, you know, that too, that idea of checking um, is an important part of stepping out of the flow because, you know, both in the flow and the um, mental model, the idea one of the things, and this goes back to the idea of science, where a model is never perfect, you have to keep on improving it. And so the idea with mental models is not worrying about, you know, in order to, to be in the flow mode or the fluid mode, which is what I like to refer to it in mental models, you turn the, the thinking, the judging mind off, you go into the flow. Then when you come out, you check, and then based on the mistakes you made, then you practice those you know what you made the mistakes with so you can improve those so next time you're in the flow you can be in the flow both without thinking basically what you're doing is working on the model so that the model outputs correctly um but a big so so one so one part i'm sort of getting away from myself here testing so one so one part of uh modeling is understanding that it is an iterative iterative process you repeat it it's going to be wrong so each iteration you make it less wrong or more right another important point is as you said is checking your work and one of the things i talk about a lot in both node the flow and uh, learning how to learn mental models is the idea that we have two mental modes more than two but the two i focus on one is the thinking mode where you can be we could look back at what you've done, say, looking at a drawing to make sure that you've done all the things or looking back at an Excel spreadsheet to make sure everything is correctly, every, everything is correct, everything matches what you have been told, everything matches what you want the program to do or what whoever asked you to do that the program wants it to do. Um, so for ourselves, so doing something, these two mental modes allow us to to do something without worrying about doing it right. And then afterwards we can step out of the flow to look back at what we've done to see where, what we need to work on, see if it's right or wrong at, you know, whatever degree, whatever level of rightness we're working towards. Um, but this also applies with doing things outside of ourselves. So doing a drawing, you do the drawing, look at it. Is that right? Programming, you do some code, run the program, look at it. Is it right or wrong? And um, I, I should say, um, I understand that testing is sometimes the most biggest pain in the butt things, but one of the most horrific experiences I had was, um, I'm sure you're familiar with, 
the Y2K and changeover and how everyone had to check the computers. And one one of my first jobs after university was working at a company. It was a gas and oil company. And we had to check all these computers. I had to go there late at night. I just broke it up with a girlfriend who so was traumatized from that. And I was going every night doing the most boring job because it was even more boring than working with guns, running through these endless test cycles to make sure that um, everything was working right. But on one hand, it was boring, but on the other hand, it, it taught me the idea of how important testing testing is. And it doesn't have, have to be that difficult if you do it in small batches. You know, like you um, in the interview, I was watching the um, sorry, what was his name again? No, Simon Brown. Simon Brown was talking about doing, I think it was, yeah, it was Simon Brown. Sorry, it's, it's right open. He was talking about learning programming by magazine and you do this program and take about a month or two before you realize there's an error in the code. And so, you know, you'd be doing this and it's like, holy sugar, you know, this was a month ago. And so one idea with, um, mental models or building mental models or just just learning in general even if it's math so for math example um if you do a math question if you're trying to learn it the sooner you can check the result the sooner you check the answer the easier it is to correct that model the easier it is to learn and this you know so um yeah so I'll just stop there because I think I've babbled on enough. Yeah, no, no, no. It's it's it's, it's interesting. How one thing uh, you know, one thing I keep bringing up is how the, the all these things fit together. Um, and it's it's interesting too. The um, I mean, I guess we're kind of we've we've kind of moved on to talking about the book. But I actually I, before we before we formally do that, I want to sort of close out the first part of the interview uh, by asking you how you got to Taiwan. Ooh, <laughs> if you're up, that's the part embarrassing. Yeah, no, no. That's it's kind of. So I lived, so I lived in Calgary for a while and, uh, then for whatever reason, after it was because a girl I met on a yoga retreat, I decided to move to Chicago, but before I moved to Chicago, uh, we broke up, but I decided to move to Chicago anyway. And then things started to, I lasted Chicago for a little while. Uh, um, but after a while, um, basically I started getting into a lot of credit card debt and not sure what I wanted to do with myself. So I ended up moving back to my parents' house. Um, had debt collectors calling and saying, hey, you owe this money. And I was sort of in this space where I didn't have a clue what I wanted to do with my life. And of course, my parents were a bit worried because I was living in their basements. So I was probably 30 years old living in my parents' basement, um, basically living off of them. And the only two things I really knew that I wanted to do, I was interested in Chinese calligraphy at the time, and I was also interested in Tai Chi, which is also relevant to sort of some of the stuff I write about. I teach the Chinese calligraphy, both of them. And so initially I thought about moving to Beijing because that would be a place where it'd be really, there's a lot of good martial arts going on there. And then, um, a friend of mine, my dad said, well, why not try Taiwan? It's a lot. It's, you can still get access to Chinese calligraphy and Tai Chi. It's a lot nicer environment. The people are a lot nicer. So, okay, then I'll, I'll, I'll do um, Taiwan instead. In both instances, my initial idea was to teach English because I didn't know anything else. And yoga, I'd been teaching yoga for a number of years and 
I don't think yoga was, I didn't think teaching yoga was a possibility. So I basically, first of all, tied up loose ends with respect to my finances in, in Canada, applied some um, teaching jobs in, in Taiwan, got accepted, and moved to Taiwan and, and taught English for a year. And it was interesting because when I was looking into Taiwan, I was looking at all of these people who had English teaching jobs, and they all talked about teaching for four years. And I found that disappointing because for whatever reason, I, I felt like I wanted to move to Taiwan to live there, even though I knew nothing about it, even though I'd never been there. And then I found out that some people do stay for, you know, for a long time. So I moved here, taught English for a year, and then I met someone who said, oh, there's a new gymnast open up, and they got a new yoga studio should apply. So I went to this yoga studio, applied, and they said, yeah, you can teach yoga if you want. So I ended up teaching yoga. And that was sort of, um, ended up becoming a full-time yoga teacher in Taiwan uh, after moving here. And I've been, that lasted until COVID. And now I'm getting back into programming, writing. And you know, that's when I started on my Sensational Yoga Poses website. That's a, that's a great way to end the first uh, segment of, of the of the podcast, um, uh, you know, with you sort of landing in a place where you finally finally stayed. Um, uh, and so the first the first book that we've already talked about a little bit um, is uh, learning how to learn mental models. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the the mental part of, of that, um, maybe more not more directly than we have so far. What what is a mental model? My so I've read a couple of articles on mental modeling. There's one in particular that talked about different mental models where whether it's understanding bias. Um, there's a bunch of things. There's, it might have been called a 101 mental model. And it is great. But my thought, and this is based on experiences in university work with professors, uh, even in the army, this idea of working from first principles or even somehow it got in my mind, the idea of basic principles, something that you can use all over and over again, which I hope is sort of carrying through this this um, this chat. Um, so I was reading this, and I thought a hundred mental models is a bit is not the best way to do it. it. It's kind of I thought there was a more basic way to approach mental modeling, and that is understanding the mental modeling software, if you like. And what I came to understand, and I might be completely wrong. Um, but it's worked for me is this idea that anytime we learn something, the thing that we learn is a mental model. It's like, you know, it's like you have your iPad and you stick a, an app on there. Each app is basically a model that does something, you know, it, um, and a model and a model, I should clarify in this case, a model isn't just a predictive thing. I think a better. A better analogy is it's like a computer program with all that flexibility. I mean, computer programs, they can access databases. They can be used to control fridges. You know, I saw an ad just recently, and apparently they've got a coffee machine, which is all computer programmed. You can control temperature and all that. So programs allow you to do a lot of things, whether it's access a database or to control actual things. And so when I talk about a mental model is, Anything in your brain that is clearly defined that does something specific. It could be remembering baseball stats, which I don't know that much about. It could be 
the program that you learn when you say learn a yoga pose or a tai chi or how to catch a, a football. It's all the programs that go into controlling your body. It's memorizing data. Um, it's the things that we use to represent the different people who we meet. You know, those are all models in a nutshell. Those are all the things that I am suggesting that for each of those discrete things, our brain has a mental model. And this guy wrote about it. I, I forgot the name. I mentioned it in the book. He talks about the actual, he says there's a, a neocortex is built up of all of these repeatable structures, which are all fairly self-similar. And he suggests that um, models of mental, I don't think, I can't remember if he uses the term mental models. I've sort of maybe co-opted that put it together, but this is the place where all of these, all this information is stored in our brain. And I, I don't really talk about the brain that much because I don't know about it. It's just, I just sort of mentioned it. And this is, um, I think there's, there's some signs to, to back it up, but it's mainly sort of looking at the brain as a black box and saying, okay, we can represent that anything that we learn, anything that's clearly defined that we learn as a mental model. Is that yeah, no, that's, that's that understandable. understandable. Yeah, no, it, no, it is. It is. It's it's really interesting actually because I mean, you know, what you talk of the what with the way you're talking now, but the way the way you write about things in the book is like paying ex, what I'm using the word explicit, but like paying explicit attention to things that I think most of us just kind of we're kind of on rails all the time, right? Like, you know, so for example, the way a lot of people approach aspects of their lives, it's not like they think, oh, I've got this sort of structure that I use when I go to get groceries, for example, and you just go and get, go and get groceries. But actually, if you take a step back from it and you think about it, oh, what, what do I actually do? Well, the first thing I do is I make a list. A list is actually a really interesting thing. And then what do I do? Well, I make sure I'm dressed before I go out. And in order to do that, I make sure I know what the weather's like. Is it raining? Is it going to rain? Is it packed with snow like in an Ontario winter? You know, things like that. And, and actually, the, the model of that you have, you do have a model of going grocery shopping. And it's actually rather complex. And the thing I like about your books is it, it, it reminds you that you can step back from all of these things um, and actually like think about them. Uh, and then, and then the interesting, what, what's sort of even more interesting is the next step, which is, um, I, the, the term that the first place I remember coming across ideas along these lines and what it means for your identity was in, um, this, uh, Heidegger, Heideggerian philosopher named Hubert Dreyfus, who talked about something called intentionality all the way down, which is a way of saying, yeah, yeah that, that, yeah, exactly. That like, it's, it's more or less from a kind of existentialist psych, psychoanalysis kind of, well, no, that's that's saying too much for that idea. But the idea is that you can do something deliberately and deliberately do it so much that it becomes automatic. Um, and how do you relate to that as a part of your identity now? Is it is it natural or is it is it artificial? Uh, is it deliberate or not? Because if you're not thinking, it, it was deliberate at one point. Does that mean it's still deliberate now? And how responsible are you for sort of your automated responses to things if they were deliberately created by you? Well, and that's, you know, this ties into the idea of habits because the everything, you know, I think this is an important part. It is each model, the way I'm approaching it, each model has dependent, you know, and, and again, this relates to Simon, Simon Brown's talk about, you know, his 14 model you know, big, big, small, smaller, 
smallest. And in a sense, it's very, I'm using a very similar approach for mental models is that you can break them down into components. But as well, what's important is that each model has a habit associated with it. And, and I define a habit as anything that you can do without thinking. And it doesn't mean that you can't be aware of it as it's happening. But in general, it's something you can do without thinking. The importance of that is, um, and this relates to being in the flow, is when you build these models, whether you choose to modularize it, you know, build it up of component habits, or if it's just something that you learn without that sort of breaking things down. The idea is that when you're in a flow, you use these habits to act effectively without thinking. And when you don't act effectively, that's when you look back at it so that you can train that model, so that you can train that habit. Yeah, thanks very much for introducing that uh, concept there, the concept of habit. That was the sort of word I was reaching for, uh, but but hadn't quite quite gotten to myself. Um, and uh, just in the interest of moving on, so the, uh, the it's a great book, everybody should get it. Uh, but the uh, the other book that I wanted to talk to you about, which is in a, in a bundle that you have together, uh, is No to Flow. Um, and I was wondering if you could just take a moment to talk about what you mean by by flow, and maybe give us an example of it. Um, well, the reason for the title No to Flow, apart from the alliteration, was the idea, and again, it, it sort of relates to the two books are almost exactly the same in, in some ways, it's just from slightly different points of view. You know, the mental models focuses on models and the things that we build when learning. Models is the things we build on learning. No to Flow is about actually getting into the flow, and it's a simple way to define flowing is you're not thinking. You know, you turn that, um, and another way to think about thinking is when you judge and, um, so an example, if you're writing out math equations really quickly, you know, you could write them out and say, okay, did I get that right? And you try and check it or, you know, with some, something like simple math. So most of us already know without thinking two plus two is four. Some of us already know, you know, maybe from doing it 12 times 12 is 144 and that's without thinking, you just know. And so one of my, um, so basically being in the flow is being able to act without thinking. And the idea of note of flow is you can have a very, so the Japanese call the same state, same state, no mind, N-O, no mind. And I sort of jokingly referred to as no mind, K-N-O-W. Um, so when they talk about no mind, they mean not thinking, but you can also think about it as knowing exactly what it is you want to do. And if we go back to the 4C model, Simon Brown talks about it, it's sort of taking a very high level look at what you're doing and say, what is this, whatever it is you're doing, what is it for? So for example, if I do upward dog, you know, there's a bunch of details you could think about in order to do it. And I would suggest that when you don't know your body, part of it can be say focusing on the shoulders, maybe lifting them up. You know, you could practice just lifting low and lifting low on your shoulders to get a feel for it. You could just focus on that action while in downward dog to get a feel for it. And because it's a very simple action, you can hold it. You know, that can be the very simple thing that you know. And because you're focusing on feeling the body, right? you know, that's one way to get into the flow, particularly when you're doing something physical, is to focus on physical sensation. This is something 
you know, I'll, I'll teach my students to feel when their shoulders lifted, and when it's lowered, and you can feel the muscle activation. You can feel the, you can feel the shoulder moving relative to your head or to your chest. But then once you've learned that, that's, you know, say you, you know your body, a very simple thing that you can focus on doing in downward dog is just, so if you're, you're in downward dog, you can reach your butt away from your hands, and that can be a very simple instruction. And so the idea of, you know, just reach your hips back away from your hands, but also up away from your feet. So the idea of know to flow is knowing very simply what it is you're trying to do, or in, in other terms, know the change that you're trying to create. What is it you're trying to do? You know, and that can that can apply to anything. It, it's sort of, you know, it goes back to taking a step back. You know, um, used an example carving. Uh, sometimes you need to take a step back from what you're doing. It's like, what exactly is it that I am trying to do? Not the details. You also need to know what the thing is that holds all those details together. Focus on that simple thing. In basically, lead with that simple idea is basically leading you. So, like Battlestar Galactica, Dama, he didn't know whether they're going to find planet Earth or not. The idea of hope, we're going to find Earth, whether or not it's out there. And he led with that simple idea, and he told everyone along based on that simple idea. You know, lean up, making it easy for publishers, for writers to write a book. That's a simple idea that holds everything that you do together, all the little elements. You know, for myself, it's trying to help people better understand what it is they're trying to do. Um, I'm still trying to figure out what my sort of thing that holds everything together is but you know you can just break it down at this moment in time what is it that i am trying to do yeah that's a really uh a really beautiful image actually of um uh, of what's going on in battlestar galactica which is actually people being led led by an idea or by a by a hope um i have one sort of specific kind of a personal question about flow so um uh, my one of my summer jobs when i was in undergrad was uh tree planting in uh, the mountains in british columbia mostly and this was a very repetitive thing that involved, you know, planting hundreds to thousands of little, little, little seedlings a day. And what you'd do is you would have them in a, you'd have the, you'd have a cache of, of trees and boxes and you would have these bags on your back and you would go and load up and then you go and you have a shovel and you make a hole and stick a tree in and close it with your foot and then move on. Um, and we had a concept of being in the zone. And I didn't, I'd heard about this and I heard about this and I didn't from veterans as we called them, I didn't really know what it meant. Until one day I was planting along at and at, at about 10 a.m. And then it was 6 p.m. And like I did, I had no memory of any time that elapsed between, you know, sort of 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. But I knew, I knew exactly how many trees I'd planted because we got paid, uh, you know, per tree anyway. It was important to keep track of them anyway. Is that an example of being in the, in the flow? Very definitely. You know, that, and that's an example of how, how to get into the flow is by doing something repetitive. And I don't know if you ever read Artist Way, um, but she she talks about it. She, she Juliet Cameron is the thing. She, talk, she talks about this thing called Morning Pages, a bunch of different stuff for becoming a better artist. You know, for guys, it can be something simple like shaving. You just get in the zone and sometimes driving a regular route. Um, you know, obviously you should be paying attention to the road, but it's it's very easy to get in the zone. You just sort of daydream in your habits, ideally checking everything. Um, but yeah, something automatic like tree planting is exactly that. And that's, um, 
you know, and it, it's something you know, I talked, I complained about doing Y two K testing, um, and I think that's one thing that can hinder getting into the show. And you know, when you're complaining and I don't want to do this, that's one sort of way that you can recognize the thinking mind not being in the flow. And as soon as you can turn that off, it can become a lot easier. And as you experience time, just you know, is it stops. And I'll give one example for me where it became really apparent is I used to be in the speed skating, which is a big number for Calgary. And yet again, I'd been dumped by a girl and was quite heartbroken. And I was in this, you know, and it was one of those things where I'd it'd be constantly in my head. I'd be like, oh, I miss her and all this. And everything I did wrong, even though I was one who probably ended the relationship. Or no, I didn't. I moved to Australia, but I was it. And she ended up breaking with me. But anyway, I was in this skating ring. I was doing this one-sided skating drill. You know, I'd glide on one foot, sort of tip to the side, then catch myself on the other foot, glide, and then repeat the process. And always going through my head, it's sort of like, exactly like tree planting was this. Glide, lean, uh, sorry, balance, glide, repeat, balance, lean, glide. And I was absorbed in this. And it wasn't quite as long as your your tree plant experience, but uh, I got up from that. And the reason I recognized I'd been in the zone was I'd completely stopped thinking about my ex. And it was just mm-hmm. like, wow, my brain felt so clear and it was so wonderful. Um, so yeah, so that's, you know, I explained to someone else, it, it's a feeling you get when you're daydreaming. You know, when you're just, you know, not sort of thinking, just remembering things. Like I remember walking, I was in Bavaria at the time, I was walking along and I was smiling because I was thinking about this Lowell Hardy movie, Lowell and Hardy movie. And I think it was the part where Stan was perhaps stuck under the, his head was peeking up over, his head was in a hole in the floor and Laurel pulled his head up and his neck lengthened. <laughs> For some reason, I was thinking about that. It just made me laugh. And then this big smile on my face walking along. You know, saying is thing sort of thing. I would, I would say then I was in the zone, even though it was in my, in my memory, it wasn't thinking. I was just reminiscing. Um, so those are all sort of examples of being in the zone. Sometimes it could be while doing something, but sometimes it can be just letting things run through your head, you know, in a nice way to be the, when you just sort of, it can also be a nice, you know, this is, I can't remember if I mentioned it in Out of Flow, or I did mention it briefly in the um, learning how to learn, that that sort of mindset can be very important as well when you're trying to solve problems, because it, it's like you you sort of turn away from the problem, like one time I was in Malaysia, I was thinking about this Taiji move with a sword, I was just, Walking along, you know, and walking is another way to getting to the flow into this zone, just walking along because it's a nice repetitive exercise. And I just all of a sudden I had this idea for this Taiji movement, which was giving me problems. Like I just had this spirit, like I could, if I just like, like was skating, if I just took the sword, then the weight of the sword itself can carry it through and I can do that movement. And so I went back to my hotel room and practiced with an umbrella. Uh, so those, those are some examples of flow on that and why being able to get into that mode is beneficial and can use it to solve problems you can just learn to enjoy life. Um, just one, one note about enjoying things before we move on to the last part of the interview where we talk about your experience as a, as a writer. Um, uh, 
what you were saying there, I can't help, but I've, I've studied a little bit of martial arts in, in my life as well. And there's some, a few of the things you've said just for, this is totally tangential, but for anyone listening, if you've ever wondered how people can spend so much time, uh, and like, you know, not just like, you know, in the day, but like, you know, throughout their lives in martial arts, Neil just gave you a perfect example of it moves, you know, particularly in, in when, why, and why do martial arts have forms, for example, and there's a lot of, or katas in, in, you know, in, in Japanese and like, you know, there's, there's a lot of reasons, there's a lot of answers to those questions, but one of the reasons it's so compelling, at least good, I would say good martial arts is that moves can be kind of puzzles. Um, and you can be taught something and you can be really good at it and have no idea why it works the way it does. And then you can have these revelations about, you know, why the move is the way it, why you were taught the move that way. Um, and so you can actually kind of know secrets without knowing that you know them, and then you can actually discover them. But another thing you can do is you can discover, as it were, kind of improvements. You know, you want to be careful, be careful with those. <laughs> but um, but they happen yeah, too. Yeah. And and there's just incredible depth and in simple and simplest, like what what might appear to be the simplest things. And I'm sure people who do, you know, jujitsu or or dance, and I mean, of course, yoga, are all familiar with this kind of thing. And the the familiar is the things you learn about your body and positioning and weight and balance and and things like that is really just endless um but with that going down that self-indulgent digression um uh so in the last part of the interview we talked about your work as a writer um do you have a practice for getting into the flow of writing it's to me, to me a lot of my writing so a lot of my writing right now is based on so if I'm teaching yoga, for example, and a lot of what I do is a yoga teacher break things down. I, you know, so for example, just lifting the shoulders, but not just lifting the shoulders, focusing on feeling. But if I find something that's particularly interesting, you know, in, in more or less the same way you talked about, you know, doing martial arts, you know, when I'm teaching, I don't know, I rarely follow a, a teaching plan, just sort of figure it out as I go. You know, because a lot of it's based on the student's ability is because I'm I'm teaching in an open class, so different levels of students all the time. And so I, I might make a discovery and say, like, oh, that's really interesting. So for one, for one, I did a series of videos on opening up the hip, hip crease or feeling the hip crease. Um, or I did a series of classes and I thought, okay, I'll, I'll turn that into a series of videos. But in the same way when I'm writing, because a lot of my writing is from my website, but also for, for some of my yoga books, it, it's you know, but also in general, based on other things that I do. Um, if it, in general, most of my writing is based on direct experience, and that's basically what I try to write about. And just as an aside, when I was in the army, I went parachuting for the first time, and I wrote about the experience. And in a similar way, while I was doing the yoga teacher training, I wrote about how to do a particular pose. In the case of the letter, my dad said, oh, I showed your letter to a bunch of people. And they said it was like they were actually in the plane. You know, letting go. And with the, when I was talking, writing about doing a certain pose, I think it was headstand. And the guy says, oh, were you actually doing this as you were writing about it? And one, one experience I have had with writing when the writing has been particularly good, what I want to try and get back to, is sort of, not thinking about what I want to write, but actually sort of going through what I'm writing about. It's particularly easy when it's direct experience. So, so with parachuting, it's like okay, I, you know, I got on the edge of the plane, I grabbed onto the struts, and it, it's kind of hard to. This was 20, 30 years ago. And the, the way I explained it was, 
I was actually visualizing what I was doing as I as I looked at that. I you know, I based out a little strut, you know, feet let go. I looked up, saw the happy face, soon as all the happy face let go. <laughs> it just went on from there. Um but a lot of times when I write, when I write from personal experience, it comes out better. And and another another way that I write so when I was writing letters home, sometimes I would, and this was by hand, I would just know what I want to write. I would just write. And it's, again, it goes back to flow. It is being like in a flow. Oftentimes I just know what to write. And I just let it come out on paper. And then afterwards I edit it. And that's, that's where I enjoy writing the most is just not thinking about it, just letting it happen. And then afterwards going and tidying up, it's like, and then the tidying up process is when I get into the, okay, if it's a bit too jumbled, what is it I'm trying to write about? Derek Sivers, who I think is another person you wrote about, he he talks about his writing process the same way. He tries to minimize it. Anything that isn't relevant, based on what I remember, what he wrote about, he said anything that isn't relevant to that particular section, he gets rid of. And that's what I try to do, you know, based on what he said, that's what I try and do with my writing when I'm going over it's irrelevant because I, I can babble on you know from this podcast as you can see um is this relevant to what this particular section is about and if not scratch it and that that in a nutshell is how you know what i'm writing now it's easy it's definitely easy with the with the shorter paragraphs um to try and make it clear yeah, thanks very much for sharing that. It's um, it really interesting. It was, reminded me of something you you a point you make you made earlier on in the interview, but um, that you that you make in your book and your writing as well is that um, you know, you, one one ought to approach these things that one does iteratively, right? You're going to have more than one go at it, um, and uh, yeah, you know, or, you know, so you know, when you're learning a practice, you're going to do it over and over and over again. And if you if you get it, just you dive in, you know, start doing it. You're going to make mistakes. That's actually a part of the learning process. That's how you get. If you see someone who's really good at something, it's because they did it over and over again <laughs> yeah. uh, and learned from their yeah. mistakes. Um, and this is just as it's, you know, you should, you should, anyway, yeah, sorry. Sorry, uh, just one point. And a large part of learning to learn is, you know, understanding the iterative process, but also understanding it in a way. And hopefully it's, you know, if you look at the, pre, uh, the preview of the book, I think it's pretty clear. There's a way that you can make the iterative process less painful and less wasteful, but also the idea of learning how to learn is to make that iterative, iterative process much more efficient, uh, less time consuming, but also, um, you know, going back to the mental models, it's learning how to build mental models in such a way that if you learn a mental model in one domain, you can apply some aspects of it to other domains. So it's more like, I would say it's more like learning how to program versus learning how to use a bunch of different apps, like learning how to program to create your own app, learning how to create an app that is that does everything you want it to do and nothing else. Um, basically that. I know that's great. Um, the uh, the last question I always ask of a guest uh, on the podcast, if they're a LeanPub author, is um, if while you're using LeanPub, and you've been around for a while, so you might have more than one answer to this, but... Um, uh, the last question I always like to ask is if there was one thing that 
uh, whenever when you were using LeanPub, you had you shaking your fist, going, "Damn you, LeanPub! Why are you? Why does this suck so bad?" Or if, and that we could fix for you, or if there was one magical, just out of nowhere feature you could ask us to build for you, can you think of you anything you would ask us to do? Um, well, first of all, I'll, I'll say that I love LeanPub, and you know, I, I think I talked to you before. I used it. Uh, I first used it maybe ten when you first started out and then I took a break because I was focusing more on video content and then came back and it's sort of the improvements you've done have been uh, really good. To be honest with you, I, there are, there was, some, oh, I think the only thing, I, I've seen this with, with lots of different companies, so it, it's not just LeanPub, but the, the help, actually no, no, there is one thing. I mean, the menu system and and again i say this with the understanding i've built a 500 web page website i've also built a, a website with 7000 pages like this chinese dictionary project indexing which is basically to, to my mind sort of building a menu system is really really challenging to get difficult to get right and i mean i part of my website building process you know spends 10 12 years building sensational yoga poses it was a constant iterative process of improving the navigation and i would say the most frustrating thing for me is the navigation it is the you know so for example finding the um i wanted to look for google analytics and i, I know it it's that is probably the only thing but at the same time, I understand that building navigation, because you've got lots of different users with different backgrounds, building navigation is a challenging subject. That's that's about the only thing I would say. That being said, I figured it out. You've got enough resources where I where I could find it. You just sort of go on the route. And was there something about our help help center documentation that you were gonna um yeah, because, and again, I've seen this with other documentation, you know, it's sort of like a constant trail of finding links to the article that you're looking for. So for me, it was the um, looking for, because um, I do, you know, in a long time ago, I was doing Chinese dictionary projects where I want to have the book published as an English book, but with the ability to include Chinese text. So it was a mix of Chinese and English. And looking through, I was trying to see if the Mark Word 3 had the ability to do that, to switch between languages, and it doesn't, but that's all right, because I can just go back to the original, um, LeanPub, whatever the, what's the LeanPub? LeanPub flavored word, yeah. Called? LeanPub, I could just go back to that, which is fine, which is what I was using before. But finding the actual article was really challenging. I didn't know how to find it. That in the end, I just used the help, and you guys always responsible for help. So, so that was. And again, I, I've seen that sort of problem with a lot of help pages, and I don't know if there's an easy fix for it or not. And I wouldn't hold it against you guys because everything else is great. You know, like I, I think your mission, everything else is great. So. Um, that those are the only two yeah. things I would uh, bring up. Yeah, no, that's that's really good. Thanks for that. Um, uh, you're not the first person to make the point about our navigation being being confusing. Um, 
yeah, as you know, as you as you mentioned, you know, we do have people who come at it now from not necessarily the different levels of expertise or what have you. You know, sort of using the web and stuff like that is is an issue. But um, the the main sort of like problem is that LeanPub is used both to search for things and buy them and then read them, uh, and to create the things yeah. that the people are searching for and buying. So there's this this two dimensional yeah. thing, and so often, uh, you know, sort of somehow maintaining both the interests of people who are using it for these, you know, di very different purposes, maintaining both of their interests at the same time uh, is just challenging. And that's not an excuse, but it, it's something we're always working to improve. Um, our current sort of, what we settled on a little while ago was having what I call the escape hatch, which is what's called the hamburger menu at the top right. That opens up a bunch of options. Yeah. Um, and then we, we need to talk about this better, but we have what we call the author app side of things. So that's when you, if you click on the escape hatch and you click on author, then you'll see a menu that'll show like books, courses, bundles and stuff. And so if you click on books, you know, for example, if you click on author and books, now you're in the, what we call the author app. So you'll see, you'll see your unpublished yeah. books. You'll see your published books. If you click on a book, that'll take you to the book overview page, overview page, which is a big page with all the pages um, <laughs> in different sections yeah. and stuff like that. But yeah, the, the sort of like, um, serving serving the interests of readers and authors at the same time on the same site is, is sort of reflected in the difficulty of getting around, but it is something we're always trying to improve and we are sensitive about. Um, when it comes to the help center, um, we're not sort of helps. We should be better at that. Um, uh, the, main, the main thing we try to do is to give articles the right titles and uh, in, the, in yeah. the sort of like, you know, byline for the article um, uh, include keywords that sort of help improve search. So naming the articles properly uh, so that they, they just come up in a search is um is one thing we try to do and one way one way we try and do that is um is we we sort of name the articles kind of inspired by the emails or what have you that messages that we've received from people looking for answers yeah so we try to do that but yeah, yeah the structure of it is not something up the help center like there is some structure there but not much um and that's definitely something that we could we could improve um Definitely. Just just to give you the context, I mean, I've looked at my own website, been looking for articles, and that that's inspired me to change my own navigation. It's sort of, like I said, I you know I wrote all the stuff on my website, and I have trouble finding stuff yeah. myself. So it isn't rent as a you know I think you guys do a great job. Um, though you know I completely understand the challenges with working with something. Um, Big, especially when you're trying to work with, um, you know, two different groups of people who you're trying to serve, it's, it's a bit of a challenge. But uh, yeah. overall, great job. No, oh, yeah, no, no. That's that's. I really appreciate the kind words. Um, uh, and uh, and the last thing, actually, I wanted to mention. So, actually, by coincidence, just yesterday, we um, released something called Tech Live 23, 2023. So this is the kind of back end of our book generation process was just updated to be, uh, you know, modernized that we were on the 2017 version of this. Um, and what that's going to enable us to do is let you have your language switcher in Markua 0.30. So we don't, we don't have it, we haven't, we haven't done it yet, but we like will be able to do that uh, in Markua 0.30. So, which is the latest version of our plain text markup syntax. That's what you, if you write a lean pub book, that's what you're writing in. Um, uh, that's the instructions for the book formatting and stuff like that. Um, so anyway, you're going to get that, uh, hopefully relatively soon. So, uh, just to end oh, on a happy note. Great uh, yeah. Uh, well, 
Neil, uh, thank you very much for taking the time out of your uh, day to, um, you know, talk to me and to talk to our audience about your life and about your work and about your ideas. And uh, thank you very much for being a Lean Pub author. Well, thank you very much for having me. It was uh, fun chatting. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a Lean Pub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.